Direct your attention to the Word of God. Our Old Testament, our New Testament reading, the Gospel reading is from Luke. Our Old Testament reading from the Lamentation of Jeremiah. And then the Gospel, the uh, Epistle is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Hear now the Word of the Lord. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then to the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Lamentations 3. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood, and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, for they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Is my microphone just a little too hot? Can you take it down about a half a ratchet? I'd appreciate it. Our series this Advent involves four Christmas carols. We're calling them the King's Carols because each one at one place or another in the carol mentions something about Jesus the King. This particular one is a King's Carol, the one we sang just a moment ago. On Christmas night, all Christians sing. It is a traditional English carol. It was found and compiled by probably one of the most eminent men in English music, Ralph Vaughan Williams, who lived in the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century. He was a master musician, had multiple degrees from Cambridge, taught at the Royal College of Music, and composed about everything you can think of, operas, oratorio, everything you can think of musically. But he had a little hobby on the side. He collected English folk songs. 
And that's what this song is. It's an English folk song, a traditional melody that uh, gives us this little carol. And in this carol, on the very first stanza, it talks about the very end, merciful king's birth, the good news of great mirth, news of our merciful king's birth. And that brings us to our theme for this morning, and that is mercy, the mercy of God. The Old Testament is filled with passages telling us that God is a merciful God. I'm a little amused sometimes when people generalize and characterize the Old Testament And its view of God is God is a God of wrath. He's arbitrary. He's mad at everybody. He's destroying things left and right. (laughs) No, that's true. But God introduces himself from the very beginning as a God who is merciful, compassionate, pouring out his mercy upon all generations In fact, two songs in the Old Testament sing of the mercies of the Lord. Quite a few do, but two in particular. One of them is the song of Moses, the oldest song in our Bible. Exodus 15, one of the lines in one of the stanzas says, you have led in steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Didn't hear the word mercy in there. Well, the reason is because mercy is a translation of a Hebrew word that we've talked about before from time to time. It's the word hesed, and it means covenant love, mercy, steadfastness, looking with compassion upon someone. The interesting thing about mercy is it is not just mere compassion. When David sang of the Lord's mercy in 145.8 in the Psalms, he said, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's a repetition. He is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. I think one of the things that help us in understanding this particular attribute of God is to is to know the way the Greeks thought about it. The Greeks, the word was elos, and it meant emotion. In fact, it was one of their key emotions that the philosophers and the teachers in the Greek schools talked about. It would think more in terms of compassion, the the stirring of the innards, the bowels, and a feeling a deep feeling of of, of pity that would be bestowed upon a person. But always remember, for the most part, our New Testament writers wrote in Greek, but they thought in Hebrew. Their thinking was Old Testament. Their thinking was the language of the prophets, and the Psalms and the law of the Old Testament. 
And when they use the word mercy or elos and talk about the mercy of God, they're really talking about this grand attribute of God called hesed, covenant love. It's a steadfast love. It is really not just an attitude, although it is an attitude, but it is a disposition based upon a relationship. It's a disposition of the heart. It's not just a, a, a fickle and capricious emotion, but it is a settled disposition of the heart in a relationship toward someone who is in a relationship. And that's what you have in the Old Testament. Mercy or compassion is that which was expected and that which was felt deeply, but it was already set toward doing good toward someone who was in a relationship. We have instances in the Old Testament where that relationship was a family relationship. There was mercy bestowed upon someone because they were part of the family. That happened in the days of Benjamin when Benjamin got completely out of control as a tribe and they were about to be exterminated by the other tribes, but they knew there was a brotherhood. And so they did not execute the malefactors of the tribe of Benjamin. Instead, they spared them. You see this in the life of the brothers and the sons of Jacob when they had some mercy on Joseph, whereas they had thrown him in the pit with intent to kill him they, because he was their brother, despised as he was, he was their brother, so they allowed him to live. They sold him into slavery, but they allowed him to live. There was a, a relationship there that was behind their mercy. A covenant or an agreement, we see that David, King David, had mercy upon one of the descendants of his good friend Jonathan, Mephibosheth. And the reason David had mercy upon him was he and Jonathan had made a covenant, a covenant of love and a covenant of brotherhood that they were going to look after each other, protect each other. And Jonathan did that to David all the days of his life. And when it came time, David bestowed hesed upon Mephibosheth. The relationship in the Old Testament that is most significant with the bestowing of mercy is that of a Lord over a vassal or a Lord or master over a servant or slave. There's an expectation that that person who was superior in the relationship the covenant maker, the Susan Rain, the sovereign, that one would be expected to deliver mercy. Mercy was an expect, get this, mercy was an expectation, but it was not a right. You couldn't demand mercy. You didn't have a right to mercy. You just received mercy. 
And the person bestowing it received all the credit because he was the one that had exercised that particular act. It was an act, not just an emotion. It was an act of trust, an act of loyalty. But it was bound together by an element of obligation. And we see that in the Old Testament with God and his people. God bound himself to his people by covenant. And that's exactly what we have in the coming of Christ. God bound himself to his people by a covenant. And in the fullness of time, he was to exercise that act and meet that expectation. That's why we call Jesus the one who was long expected. The people expected God to save them because he had promised and they knew that he would keep his word. So our salvation is not capricious and incidental. It is the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God has determined from all eternity to save his people. That's why when Jesus came, the herald angel speaking said, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. I don't know if there's a phrase anywhere that's the gospel more encapsulated. He, Jesus, and Jesus alone, no one else, no one working in association with him other than the second person of the triune God carrying out the will of God in saving his people. He shall. Didn't say that he would just make an opportunity to be saved if people would avail themselves of it. Did not say he would provide a salvation that would be adequate if people would just choose it. Didn't say he would set him forth to be available to be a savior if people would just simply come to him. No, he said he shall save. And he didn't mean that he was going to just partially save. It meant he would entirely and completely, he would do everything necessary to rescuing his people. Oh, and it said he came to do it for his people. There is a group of people known from all eternity to God, not known to us. There's a people, a definite number that God has marked out and placed in the way of salvation. People are uncomfortable with sovereign election sometimes and they argue about it and debate about it and we have all sorts of difference of opinions and it's a stumbling block to some. But if it wasn't for God's electing, determining grace, there would be no salvation. In just a minute, we'll turn to Paul and we'll see why. 
but he shall save his people from their sins. The weightiest matter, the most important thing, the thing that makes this all a meaningful story is that there's a sin issue. There's a problem, there's a malady in the creation and a remedy must be found. Sin is the problem. I don't know why we don't want to talk about sin. It is pervasive. It is historical. It is destructive. It's intrinsic. And every person here has a serious, serious issue with sin. It has ruined your life. You have no idea how good your life would have been had it not been for your sins. <laughs> the choices you've made the things you've done, the affections that you have rewarded, the instincts that you have followed have all led you into one sin or another. The appetites that you have gratified, the people that you have listened to, the associations that you have made, you've lived in a world of darkness. The saddest thing that happens to the human heart is when we don't see and appreciate the gravity, the reality and the gravity of our sins. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There is none righteous, no, not one. We come from the womb speaking lies. On and on and on, the scripture tries to get through to us of our serious desperation in our sin. And for some reason, we just walk along in our lives and live in denial and depreciate it, rationalize it, excuse it ignore it. God doesn't. In the councils of heaven, he said, I've got to do something about that. I've got to do something about that person's sin. And I'll tell you why I'm going to do something about it. Because that person is mine. I love them. That person, that individual person, and put yourself in that place as you hear this little message this morning. That's what God said. I'm going to do something. I have a heart that is bent toward mercy. And that person belongs to me in a special covenant relationship. I have marked him out. He belongs to me. I'm responsible for his eternal destiny. And I'm going to save him from his sins. That's election. That's God placing his affection and his love and his determination upon a soul saying, I don't know what, I don't care what, I'm going to save that person. And that's what God has done for each and every one of us. He's gone out of his way. The picture is that of a shepherd that leaves the 90 and 9 in the, in the fold and goes into the wilds of the wilderness at great cost and great sacrifice and great danger. It's not an accident that Christ was pierced with nails and spear as we sang about a moment ago in that song, What Child Is This? 
is because there's a bloodshed, there's a danger, there's a, there is a impalement, and there's a suffering involved in the rescue of a lost sheep. And that's who Jesus is. He came to bear all of that, to do all of that, to go through that, to walk that path, to do everything that was necessary so that God's mercy could be effectually bestowed upon his people. Mercy, love, grace, kindness, compassion are all kind of wrapped up in what we call sometimes the goodness of God, the benevolence of God. That somehow that sort of seems to, the connotation of the word benevolence is it's kind of uh, meek and mild, but the goodness of God to go to the extent that he goes to to save us from our sins. This is what the Lord has done, and he's done it in Christ. There's also a sense in which mercy or steadfast love, covenant love, compassion, God's mercy is mingled in his justice. We, we get this when we listen carefully to the echoes of the prophet Habakkuk from the Old Testament when he sees God's people plunging into sin and, and God specifically lays out the punishment that he's going to bestow upon the people and it's a dreadful punishment. It ends up being the Babylonian captivity. And all Habakkuk was able to pray was, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. What a, what a plea on the part of the prophet. God, I know that your wrath is just and that your justice is righteous and I know what you do is right. But, but don't forget, you're a God of mercy. And that's exactly what we find when Paul lays out in one of the great gospel passages that we read here a moment ago. It talks about the awfulness of that condition of sin. And I didn't read it, but let me just go over it. It's a couple of verses. You were dead. That doesn't sound too encouraging. You were dead. How far gone are you when you're dead? How much medicine will help you when you're dead? How much encouragement will help you when you're dead? How appealing is a gospel invitation to you when you're dead? When you take a banquet into the cemetery and invite everyone there to come to the banquet. The banquet is full. There's no problem with the banquet. It's the corpses in the tomb that have the problem. And that's who we are spiritually. We are the corpses in the tomb. We are encased in a place that simply hides our decay. We were dead in trespasses and in sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. Children straying, children disobeying, children rebelling. That's who we were. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. That's not those other folks. That's, 
That's you and me. Like the rest of mankind, it's the universal sinfulness. And then our passage, but God, being rich in mercy, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's a remarkable thing. Jesus died for the ungodly and he died for them while they're still in their sins. Made us alive together with Christ. Paul puts this in parentheses, by grace you've been saved. Do you understand grace? By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul says this one more time and let me read it for you as we conclude. Listen to the way he puts it in one of the very last letters that he wrote to young Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness, there's that word, that it, mercy, steadfast love, loving kindness. It's, a, it's, it's hard to translate with just one word. Uh, it does have a phrase that's used over and over. It's called the sure mercies of David. You know how we've emphasized so much during this Advent season that Jesus is a descendant of King David? Well, the salvation that comes to us is titled according to David's inheritance, the sure mercies of David. And that's what they are. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the, the good news. This is the message that's to all people, all without any distinction, rich, poor, young, old, all nations, all ethnicities, no matter how far gone you are in your sins. This is the message. Unto you is born this day a Savior, a merciful Savior who is Christ, the Lord Jesus.